Hello and welcome to Co-OpCast, a podcast about cooperative board games with your hosts, Peter Gusis and Michael Kelly. Hi, I'm Peter and I'm here with Mike. How's it going, everybody? And welcome to episode four of Co-OpCast. Episode four! Oh, you went totally opposite this time. Well, you said I was too low last time, so I figured I would change it up, man. We can't sit and get tired. We gotta keep this podcast exciting and memorable. After four episodes, we're already going crazy. People get bored real fast these days, man. It's a new culture. True that. And I don't know why I said true that, but... <laughs> 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 Clearly, we are not members of this new culture. <laughs> Word. <laughs> Word to your mother. <laughs> All right. Uh, what game are we reviewing, Peter? I forget now. In this episode, we'll be discussing Sword and Sorcery. Yeah, and, uh, I, I kickstarted this one. So this is the Kickstarter edition that I have. Um, the first wave, because the second wave is coming in, I don't think until like the end of the year with another campaign and a bunch of other stuff. And I do think that we're going to limit our discussion to the base game and we're going to keep this spoiler free as well. Yep, sounds good. All right, so I'm going to go over a brief introduction and overview of the story. So in Sword and Sorcery, you actually play heroes who have been risen from the grave to fight against the forces of evil. One of the cooler aspects of the game is you're collecting these soul shards that help you regain your former power. So they'll help you level yourself up or resurrect yourself from the dead. And there are even weapons you enchant with them. So Mike, why don't you get a little bit into gameplay? Well, first, man, I just want to say I, I didn't have this connection until I just heard you reading that. This is a far-off callback, but do you remember a video game called Altered Beast? Yes, I do. Yeah, so I, I don't know why it jumped out at me, but, uh, you know, the game would start with this terrible computer voice saying, Rise from your grave. And the idea was that, yeah, you were like Greek heroes who had been brought back to life to fight Hades or whoever the heck the main villain was. So yeah, it's, that's, that's maybe the only other thing I can think of where you are resurrected to fight evil. So it's not a very often used theme, I guess. And this game does actually combine a lot of genres. So I do think, I mean, there's a very strong possibility that that is where they found that, that concept from. All right, so let me give a rules overview of what a turn looks like. So you begin the turn by resolving any ongoing effects from previous turns. You might be poisoned, you might be on fire, stuff like that. Then you go into the real meat and potatoes of the uh, gameplay, which is the uh, the battle phase. So in the battle phase, uh, the players get to decide what order they activate in. So you don't have to go around the table and you can chain from round to round. And uh, each player will take their turn, which in the beginning consists of a movement action, a action action, and a combat. You can also take as many free actions as you like. So, and you can kind of string this together in whatever order you like. The action can even interrupt your movement or your combat. But generally on a turn, you're moving and fighting somebody, or fighting and then moving, or sometimes not moving at all if you're already engaged with an enemy and don't want to give them a free attack. Uh, Movement is a set number. All of the movement is area-based. And usually there's not too much variety in where you can move. You're either going down a corridor or maybe moving within the two or three space width of a room. Combat is resolved with custom dice for defense and attack with a whole bunch of symbols on them. In a basic sense, you're comparing your number of hits to the enemy's number of defense symbols, but you might also get lightning bolts and enemy powers and things that fire off all these different effects from your character or from your weapon or from your spell. So combat has some 
simple basics but gets complicated. Um, after each player resolves their actions, their combats and moves and such, then you draw an encounter card, which will activate some, or even potentially all, or sometimes none of the enemies. Although in our games, there haven't been too many enemies at a time, usually around two or three. You don't get huge mobs on the board, especially in a two-player game. So after the players resolve their encounter card... Uh, the other players will resolve their turn, their encountered card. When every player is taken a turn, you go into the event phase, and you have this events deck that's partially the timer for the game, because when the events run out, you automatically lose the mission if you haven't already uh, completed your objective. And the interesting thing is you uh, flip an event the first turn when there's no event already flipped, and the second turn you discard that flipped event. So each card actually represents two turns of game time, and there are even some events you can do on the board that will add a card to the deck and give you more time to finish the mission. Yeah, I do think those events are really neat, and they do add some nice flavor to the game. So how about the goals of the game? Generally, they do tend to be either reaching something or killing something or some combination of those two things. You're generally trying to, like, open some door, sometimes find a key. There's definitely a variety in the missions, but that's usually what the objective comes down to, defeating some big monster or reaching some objective with monsters in your way. Yeah, so it, it's a pretty smooth playing game, although we'll discuss that more in our pros and cons. Should we uh, talk about those? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll go ahead and start with the pros. One of the cool things about the game, I think, is a weapon cooldown system. And I've seen this in other games, and we've actually thought about it and talked about it before in our own designs. I really think it's neat how if you use something that's really powerful, you have to wait longer for it to come back. And if you use something not as powerful, you'll get benefit of it right away. Yeah, I like that too. Um, it reminds me of you know Diablo or World of Warcraft, both, with, both of which I think are influences on this game. I also like, as you power up, the abilities you have can be used at different power levels, and they usually have a longer cooldown. So if you have a fireball, you can shoot an even bigger fireball, but you have to have no use of that ability for a longer period of time. So that gives some cool tactical choices. The way it works is you're going to flip the card over, and there are timers like on the back, depending on which way you spin your card. Once it's spun down to one timer, then you'd flip it over when it's done. I'll be honest, I like the way Star Wars, the living card game, does it a little bit better where you're putting tokens on it. I wish they had done that instead where, you know, if your cooldown is two, you put two tokens on it. After every turn, you remove a token. I just think it's cleaner than spinning the card because you might spin it the wrong way or I often forget to do it. So I think that would be a little cleaner, but I love the concept. Yeah, me too. Uh, my first pro, which uh, for those who have not listened before, our pros kind of go ascending. So we start with the smallest thing we like about the game into the thing that is most impressive to us. My first one, so I'm actually usually not a very big miniatures person. In fact, I sometimes dislike games when they use a lot of miniatures. I feel like it gets in the way of the gameplay. I, I felt that way about Blood Rage, for example. I didn't like, you know, as cool as the miniatures were, I didn't like these giant things kind of, in my mind, cluttering up the board. But here, for, for whatever reason, I really enjoy these miniatures. I think the sculpts are generally dynamic and cool. They're pretty large in size and uh, chunky. And especially the, the master monsters. I mean, they're just really, really nicely detailed, cool-looking guys. And a quick note on uh, quality. All but one of my miniatures arrived undamaged, and Ares is going to replace the one that was damaged. And they did have uh, bent, like, spears and swords and that kind of thing. 
but uh, just a nice kind of positive uh, for the miniatures. When I did the the hot cold water, you know, dunking in a almost boiling water and then put it in cold water, I didn't even really have to bend the miniatures. They immediately reset themselves to where they were supposed to be. So clearly, they had kind of some you know memory of how they had been molded. But yeah, uh, usually I don't say this, but I really like the miniatures and looking them at them on the boards, which are also pretty attractive. I think the components are good in general. I, I really uh, it, it ups my enjoyment of the game. Well, and I think one of the cool parts is, and you see this right away on the first mission, they use different monsters than you've seen in the past. So the first thing you're fighting against is gremlins, for example. So I think that may increase the enjoyment of them as well because they're not your generic orcs or elves or whatever although there is plenty of that in there as well especially with the heroes so what's your uh, second pro peter my second pro is how the weapons level up in a lot of these games sometimes you'll find something very overpowered early on and it'll just throw off the complete balance of the game and while this game does have weapons that are certainly more powerful than the ones you start with even if you don't find one of those weapons you can forge your weapon between games So what you do is you just pay 50 gold and then you flip your weapon over and it becomes a more powerful version of itself. And usually the weapons you find from that item deck are about equivalent powered with that, maybe a little bit more powerful. But it's neat that even if you don't find an awesome weapon for your character, you're still going to have cool weapons throughout the game. I like that too, although I do slightly disagree. I think it's pretty easy to get either nothing from the treasure deck and just to be clear, uh, infrequently there is this treasure deck you can draw from when certain events take place or when you kill certain monsters or uncover certain search tokens. But yeah, I feel like if you get lucky and get just the right weapon for your character, you're doing way more damage than other people. And on the other hand, if you just have a really bad run of luck, you're you're blowing 50 gold every mission. So I do like the weapons, but I think there is some hit or miss with the uh, the luck there. Although I don't think it's something as bad as a game like Zombicide, where you could get a weapon where one person's doing all the damage and the other person's doing nothing. At least in my mind, there is options for those people who didn't get the the best weapon they could find in the loot. The weapons in the loot seem pretty equivalent. Yes, you're not spending 50 a gold a mission, but they just have different powers on them. So I didn't find them that much more powerful, I guess. That's a good point, and I, I've never felt in any of the games like I wasn't contributing or you weren't contributing. So you're right. I'll, I'll give that to you. So my second pro is that for a dungeon crawl that is pretty crunchy in the rules and that has a lot of stuff going on, a lot of different monsters, a lot of tiles, the game is, in my mind, very quick to play, especially with two players, And really surprisingly quick to set up and tear down. Now, there are a lot of tokens. You have to get all that stuff organized. But once you've put in that kind of preliminary work, the tiles go together really nicely. It's such a change of pace from the Imperial Assault tiles, for example, which are really a hassle to put together. Well, and Gloomhaven as well. I've said that to you before. We're going to get to Gloomhaven eventually, but... Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. Gloomhaven, you know, the map tiles barely even matter for a lot of the missions, but it takes forever to find the specific ones they're asking you to get. And you're not putting 100 tokens on it either. So it the setup is pretty quick, although there are some things that get in the way, like you have to set up the event deck in a specific order. You've got to pull out certain enemy cards. But even with that, you're right. Setup is much quicker than most of these other games in its genre. Yeah, I mean, we we played, in each of our play sessions, we've played two campaign missions in a row, and these are not like, these missions don't feel like short or not meaningful. They feel like you're doing a lot in them. 
but with like setup, playing two missions, setting up each of them, tearing down, all of that put together, that was probably two and a half hours, which for two missions in a dungeon crawler with tiles you have to lock together in a puzzle format, I, I, I think that's really fast for its genre. So that that definitely means we're going to get more play in than we would for a lot of other games in uh, this kind of role. And one of my favorite things that they do and I was going to put this in, but it's actually an honorable mention for me, is I love the way the tiles, they're only numbered 1 to 20, and they're on A and B side. So that's it. So you can put them in order and easily pull out the tiles you need. And then when you place them on the board, it actually, there's only one spot where it shows the letter and number, and it shows you which direction to orient it. So you're not using cues on the map tile. Even games like Mansions of Madness don't have that. They just say, find this tile, and it's named, and you got to search through like 100 tiles to find the one you're looking for. And then, you know, then you got to figure out the orientation as well. And it doesn't give you any hints to that. I think they did a really good job with the map tiles of making it easy to lay the map out and really quick, quicker than any game I've seen. Yeah, definitely. All right, Peter, your best pro for Sword and Sorcery. So my number one pro is a feeling of progression, and it's a steady feeling of progression. We've played a lot of these games. We've played Shadows of Brimstone. We've played Imperial Assault. We've played Gloomhaven. We've played a lot of these dungeon crawl type games, and I think this one gets it right. I think you were leveling up at the exact pace I would want to level up in a game like this. Yeah, and character progression in general was my honorable mention. I think the game does it well. I would say Imperial Assault is about the same level for me. I feel like that one's nice because you gain an ability every mission or two. You gain, like, new items every time. And this one feels about the same. Like, we're, we just finished the fourth mission, and I think we're both on the fourth level. So it seems like, on average, because the enemies give you more soul shards as you advance through the campaign, it feels like, on average, you're going to be getting about one level per, per mission, and, you know, each level tends to give you, like, more actions or more, definitely more health, uh, more spells and abilities. So, yeah, I, I think you're right, Peter. It's definitely a really positive thing for the game. All right. So what's your number one pro? So uh, I really like, and I, I liked how they did it in Galaxy Defenders, which is another game by, uh, I think they're called Gremlin Games, the guys who, who make these with Ares. Both those games have really nice variety in the monsters and how monster AI is handled. And I think this game's addition of the encounter deck, where you're never quite sure which monsters are going to activate, and they have kind of interesting ways to activate the different monsters, I think the combination leads to some cool monster behavior. And what I love for this one, the Galaxy Defenders did not do. So both games have uh, colors for the monsters, so green is the weakest, blue is in the middle, and red is the toughest. In uh, Sword and Sorcery, they actually have kind of different archetypes for each of the monster colors. So you don't have a ton of different monsters in the base game. Um, you've got, what is it, gremlins, orcs, orc shamans, bandits. Oh, I guess, I guess you have the swarms of gremlins. So you can have like two gremlins working together who attack somewhat differently. So it doesn't sound like a ton. It's like five different monster types. But the green bandit is an archer who runs away when you try to attack him. The blue bandit is a master sword fighter. The red bandit is a commander who actually activates other monsters near him. 
So you get some really cool like differences and the monsters do different things depending on how far away they are from you. So if they're like three spaces away, they'll throw a dagger. If they're one space away, they'll charge you. If they're right in your space, they'll use some crazy ability, which adds to the tactical like strategy of the game and it just makes it fun. And a cool thing again that they didn't do for Galaxy Defenders, but they did do for this one, is that they have ranked the monsters in power level and it's going to allow you once Act 2 is released, you can play the exact same missions, play through Act 1 again, but this time use skeletons instead of gremlins for your easiest monsters. So they not only have nice variety in the monsters, but they have the ability, which a lot of games don't give as well, to totally change out who you're fighting in the same scenario to give the game better replay. So I just love the way they did the monsters in general and how their AI works. Cool. So let's get on to cons. My number three con is actually the exact opposite of what you're talking about. I actually think there is limited variety, at least at this point in the game. There's only six missions in the game. There are only five heroes to choose from. And there's only, like you were saying, five different types of monsters, even though they act a little bit differently from each other. You're going to still be seeing the same monsters from mission to mission. And there are only two tank heroes, for example. And I think you need to use one of them in your party to make it more balanced and make it more likely for you to succeed. So I do think there is a little bit of a limited variety just in the base set. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I don't think it's as bad as you do, but it, it does bother me. I guess I'm sort of looking forward to Act 2, but to just consider the base set, you're right. There's not as much in there as some games. I think it compares well to something like maybe Imperial Assault. You can't really compare any of these games to Gloomhaven because that game just shoves so much content into the box. It's really, you know, above any other game in the genre. I agree. So what's your number three? Yeah, so my, my weakest con is actually sort of a counter to one you had brought up earlier, which is the items. I feel like there aren't enough item options in terms of, like, weapons and armor for the individual characters, especially for the characters who are focused on one type of thing. So uh, one of the wizard characters, she can use wands as a free attack. There's very few wands. The thief character, one of the abilities she can choose lets her do a lot of things with daggers. There's very few daggers. There's an archer and there's very few bows. It feels like the items are pretty limited right now. So I guess it does kind of relate to what you're saying, Peter, except more specifically on the items. And for us, within like the first two missions, we already had enough money to buy the best that was to offer in the uh, like market deck for each of our characters. What that meant is we're just hoping that the treasure deck, which you don't get to draw from very often, happens to randomly give us things that match our character and our character's abilities. So it can be a little frustrating that it's very quick to get like the exact items you need, and then you're just hoping that the randomness allows you to level up in terms of your items. Although I will say what we did find, because we were a little worried about that. We're like, what are we going to do with all this money? We're sitting here with like 300, 400 money. What are we going to do with it? We did find there are some pretty cool consumable items in the game. And again, it feels almost like a game like Diablo, where you're spending that money for a quick hit benefit on the next mission. And I did find those items neat and also very valuable when you're in the game. Yeah, I'll agree with that. I love the consumables. I'm more thinking about like the permanent armors and weapons. But yeah, I, I do think that there are good options for spending your money. I agree, though. I would get frustrated if I was four missions in, five missions in, and I was still using a weapon I had to buy at the tavern. That is the one benefit of using things like warriors. Pretty much any weapon that comes up, you're going to be able to use. All right, Peter. So what was your second con? My second con is the rules. 
And don't get me wrong, I actually think the rules do a pretty good job of explaining how to play the game, but they are the one of the worst references I've ever had. If you need to find something while you're playing, it is just almost impossible to find what you're looking for. They don't seem to be in a very good order. Now, now that I've looked through the rulebook five or six times, I kind of am getting a little bit of a feel for it. But my first literally three games I played either solo or with my nine-year-old, I couldn't find anything I was looking for, and it was very frustrating. The game was taking three, four hours to get through one mission, and as you know, we were playing through it in about an hour. But if you don't know these rules well, and you're trying to find something, it's almost impossible. Yeah, I I didn't have as much trouble learning them, maybe because of my experience with Galaxy Defenders, because a lot of concepts from that are brought over here. But I 100% agree with you. The index, you know, they don't even really have one. There's sort of a table of contents at the beginning, but it's pretty terrible. And they do have a lot of, like, small rules that are only mentioned once in a single sentence. So if I hadn't read through the rulebook several times before I played, and even now I might be missing, like, some small little thing. So, yeah, you're you're 100% right there. And with something with such little rules and something that is supposed to get you into the story, and there is a lot of story as you're going along. There are these waypoints, there are these story cards, and these other waypoints that when you hit them, you read a little bit of a story text out of the rulebook, and it's neat. And it gets you immersed in the game, but if two seconds later you have to look up a rule and it takes you 15 minutes to do so, it really just totally breaks you out of the immersion of the game. And that that's frustrating for me. When I play this kind of game, I really want to get involved. Yeah, totally agree. So my second con is that there are a lot of fiddly, kind of hard-to-remember elements in the game. I won't talk too much about this, but basically... It's hard to remember to turn over your abilities when you use them. It's hard to remember that you're on fire, that you're poisoned. Um, It's hard to remember whether you've used all your actions for that turn or not. It's hard to remember to draw an encounter card after your turn. So, in general, the game still flows pretty well, and we got through it, but I know we made mistakes, and I figure players who aren't paying as much attention or who are just kind of like having a fun time might miss a lot of those things. And the game, I do think, is going for a Diablo crowd, like kind of just playing through a game, knocking some goblin heads. And I think that the fiddliness gets in the way of that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, if that's your number two, I can't imagine what your number one is because that's definitely my number one. There is a lot of little things going on. When you're fighting an enemy, every enemy has four different powers. Some trigger on offense, some trigger on defense, some are always on. There are just so many little rules. It is so easy to forget. And and one of the biggest things I've actually found is The number of characters on a space matter, so if you overwhelm them or they overwhelm you, meaning you have more guys than them, they have more guys than you, it matters to how many dice you roll. When factoring all these things in, along with their special abilities, along with trying to remember everything else, it really is just overwhelming. And I tend to forget things, not because any individual thing is hard to remember, but because there are so many little things. And so that's why it's my number one thing. I think that really brings the game down a little for me, unfortunately. So my number one is going to go straight into our our second part of the show, which is a debate on how balanced co-op should be and specifically how balanced uh, characters in a co-op should be. So my number one is the balance of the game, and mostly for the characters. So just to give you an illustrative example just in the base game, one of the characters, we should say, each character has a like good and a bad side that has different abilities and different uh, skills available to them. 
So the first character I played when I was playing solo was a thief, and one of her sides lets her, if she does one dagger attack, she could also attack with a dagger in her other hand, which I thought sounded awesome. Like, she'd be doing a ton of damage, and she'd be aggroing people, she'd be a little weak, so I'd have a tank to protect her. But it turned out that a lot of the monsters have armor that is automatically applied to every attack against them, and the daggers, especially the ones you start with, do almost no damage. And you would think, you know, you're giving up a second hand that you might have used to, like, hold a shield or something. But, like, a one-handed sword would do more in one attack than two daggers would do in an attack each. So, like, that was very frustrating, that that character was just so weak. And the archer is the same way. The archer bow does one automatic damage and one blue dice. And blue dice are the weaker attack dice. So, on average, you're doing two damage. Early on, you start out weak, so you do one less damage throughout the beginning. And then if they're resistant to piercing or if they have an armor, I mean, you're doing zero damage on average. So, yeah, you might get a second attack, but two attacks at zero damage is still zero damage. Yeah, and then a similar thing is the skills available to the characters. Um, It's not terrible. There are definitely interesting choices, like there are good skills for each character. But there are also some ones that are clearly duds like only usable in a very, very specific situation when another skill is amazing all the time. And as we'll get into in the debate in a second, I really hate that when I just feel like some skills are already dead on arrival. Like the game gave me 10 skill cards, but I'm only really ever considering five of them because the other five are almost useless. Yeah, and there's no prerequisites to skills either. So it's not like you would take something to build up to something else. If a skill is useless, it's just useless. Yeah. So that was my number one. I, I do agree that the fiddliness is a big thing, but the, the balance is more frustrating for me because I'm used to playing solo games a lot and I can deal with fiddliness. There's nothing I can do about the balance unless I just redesign cards. All right, so Mike, let's give us your overall impressions on the game. Overall, um, I, I'm, I'm not unhappy I kickstarted it. I like it. I'm enjoying playing it with you. I think I'll play it more solo even. I think the miniatures are beautiful. I think I got like a lot of cool stuff for my value, especially when the second act comes. And I think it sits in a weird place. I think solo players will enjoy this more than most groups. I think it's a little too light and action-packed for, like, heavy strategy people. But I think it's a little too fiddly and hard to get into with the rules and stuff for the lighter crowd. So I'm actually not quite sure who it appeals to, except for hardcore soloists. Yeah, to be honest, I thought you were going to be a lot more positive on it. And I thought I was going to be coming down on the other side of things. I will say I do like the story. It's engaging me, and I want to finish the campaign, and I definitely want to play it with you. I actually come down on the other side with playing it solo. I'm actually enjoying playing it two players because there are so many little rules. I think with two of us looking out for them, we'll be more likely to not miss things. And so I actually think having a second set of eyes there, as long as the second person knows the rules, is a good thing. That's a good point. The one thing I will say, though, is that it really frustrates me, the little fiddly stuff. And I was just saying each before, the enemies each have four special powers, but that doesn't include some of them are vulnerable to piercing, so piercing does more damage. Some of them have resistance to piercing, so piercing does less damage. Some have armor, some don't. They have different amount of hit points. They move differently, they act differently. There's so many little things when you are attacking them that you have to be focused on, and I don't know that there is enough payoff for me. Meaning... Really, when it comes down to it, I'm just rolling dice and seeing what happens. I think a big problem that goes along with that is that 
at least right now, and this is again back to the character balance, the monsters seem to die too quickly. So I feel like, you know, my, my number one thing was how cool and varied the monsters are, but I feel like they're dead before they get to use a third of their abilities. You know what I mean? Yeah, and what am I going to do? Because you're walking down these corridors and there's not a whole lot of tactical choices and, you know, yes, you get benefits for having more people in a square, but that doesn't lead to tactical decisions. That leads to everybody piling in a square. So to me, there aren't really a lot of tactical choices you're making in the game. And if a game is more complicated and it leads to more interesting strategic choices, I think that's great. But I don't know that this one does. I think it's just fiddly... And it doesn't add to the strategy of the game. Yeah, you know, n- not to compare too much, but I do, I think I like, even though it's an earlier version of the design, I think I enjoy Galaxy Defenders more because it has a lot more tactical and strategic decision making going on. But I will say a Galaxy Defenders mission tends to take me two to three hours and this takes me one hour. So I don't mind it as much and I'm still enjoying. I'm definitely going to play through all of the f- campaign with you. And then when Act 2 comes, if you're not into it, I'm going to play all of that solo. So I'm, I'm, I'm in for the game. But I don't think it's great for a lot of other people, if that makes sense. It's definitely not like a, a, a home run in my mind. Yeah, I would definitely say if you get a chance to play it, especially if you like these kind of games, the game plays good. There's a lot of interesting thing going on. You're used to maneuvering a lot of these enemy AIs already. Then go for it. I think you'll love it. But even if you're not... As many negative things as I've just said, I actually think it's fun to play through. I'm enjoying the story. I'm enjoying what's going on, especially if you can find somebody to not only teach you, but guide you through it and play with you so that they can help run the AI and make sure you guys aren't missing things. I do think it's a cool story to experience. The miniatures are cool. And so I do think it is fun to get to the table, even though I did have a lot of negatives with the game. Yeah, and and I love my character. I'm kicking butt, and it's fun. You know, like, the game is definitely fun. Yes. Just just know that there are a lot of hurdles to getting into it and go into that with, you know, your eyes wide open. Cool. All right. Well, we're doing something a little different this week. Instead of our normal design discussion, we're going to have a design debate. And so what this means is we're each going to take one side of an issue. Neither of us is going to be 100% right or 100% wrong, even though I'm sure a lot of you out there will fall on one side or the other 100%. But we are going to just take two different sides of an issue and see where we come out at the end. So our debate this week, as uh, already mentioned, is whether cooperative games should have character options. These are the characters you choose to play as with whatever special powers they might have. Whether the characters should strive to be mathematically balanced, so theoretically I have no greater or lower chance of winning the game based on which character I choose, or should they be, you know, kind of tiered or sometimes stronger, sometimes weaker than others as that adds something to the game. So I'll be arguing for the mathematical balance since I tend to be the the math guy in our little team. Yeah, and I'm going to argue for difference in power levels of characters. All right, so uh, I'll start off. I find it very frustrating when I play a cooperative game, especially my first plays of it, and I have a very easy time or a very hard time, and then I find out that if I had played with a different character, my experience would have been totally different. So I'm not talking about necessarily like later in the game when you want variety and you want different options, but I think, first of all, I think it could be killing to a first play if you happen to accidentally pick the worst character and you go in and get demolished, and you think that's the game experience. 
So in Sword and Sorcery, if you happen to pick, like, let's say your party was the the archer and the thief, both of who we said are weak, you would kill nobody, and I think you would think the game was terrible. So that's my first kind of point on the side of mathematical balance. I think that it can really ruin a first play experience if you have uh, characters that are way overpowered or way underpowered. Yeah, and my counterpoint to that is, even though I am arguing for the point of variety and different power levels... I do think you need to let players know that. So a game that I think does a good job of this is Too Many Bones lets you know how difficult or hard a character will be, not only for co-op play, but also for solo play. So there are different power rankings based on whether you're playing co-op or solo. And I do think if done well, that you can rate a character and say, hey, if you want more of a challenge, use this character. If you want less of a challenge, use this character. So I do think there is a way for designers to put it in there. If they just throw it in there and tell you everything's balanced or don't tell you anything and then you find out it's way unbalanced, I agree, that's a problem. But I think it's easy enough to give each character a power level that you can give people variety. And if they want more of a challenge, then they can take that harder character. I do agree with you. Another one that does that is Sentinels of the Multiverse. One small caveat I'll add to that, though, is it's not so great. It's okay if it's complexity, like Too Many Bones and Sentinels. It's not that that character is necessarily weaker. It's that they are more complex and harder to figure out. But if it's literally like these three characters are the easy ones and these three characters are the hard ones, that can be frustrating once I know a game and I'm only going to be using the strong character or the weak characters to make the game challenging because then suddenly my... My character pool has been cut down. I thought I had eight characters to play with, but now suddenly I only have three to play at the challenge level I want to play at. But in general, I agree with you. I think it is good if they... It's much better if they alert you. Well, my next point, just kind of riffing off of that, though, is if you've got a new player in your group, you can give them this character and say, you know what? This character is a little bit more powerful, a little bit easier to play with, and it's a good one to learn with. Once you master that... Because let's be honest, with games that you play you're not necessarily going to want to play through them with the same characters anyway. So I think if you have a tiered system where you go in playing with some of the easier characters and then you get a little bit better at the game, now you can play with the medium characters. And then the third time you play through, you can play with some of the the weaker characters or the harder ones to play with. And I think it gives you variety in that game and gives you, it's almost like playing a video game with like easy, normal, and hard mode. You're getting variety because you're playing with a different type of character and it gives you a different power level when you go through it. Yeah, that is a good point. I don't really have any argument against that. I do like the idea of being able to handicap. Although I will say I'd rather it be in other things you can do. Like the characters are equal, but you give one of them an item to start with. Or they get extra health, you know. So that all characters are always available to me. But I, I do think that a tiered system can be cool. I certainly appreciate that in like fighting games or sports games like Blood Bowl where you can like give yourself a harder, easier time against an opponent who might not be uh, as good as you. Though I'll say I think that's less important in a cooperative game and more important in a competitive game. You know, if if a character, if a player is not as experienced in a cooperative game, you know they've got a team to work with. I don't think it matters as much if they have a stronger character to kind of keep up with because they already have you there to back them up and fill in their weak points. You know. Right. Although that brings me to my next point, which is you're playing a co-op game. So who cares if it's a little unbalanced? I'm more upset if I'm playing a competitive game 
and one person is way stronger than me. And I feel like, wow, I can't do anything to keep up with this person because they have such cool things that I can't do. In a cooperative game, I may get a little bit jealous, but that just makes me want to play that character the next time. And that just means that, hey, we're going to beat it because I've got somebody cool helping me out on my team. I I sort of agree with you, but I I don't think you're... I think when you say, hey, I just want to play that guy next time, I don't think you're being totally honest with yourself. You know, think about some of our bad play experiences with uh, Zombicide or Zombicide Black Plague, where a character is literally just not as good and is left behind and gets to do very little. I'll agree it's equally, if not more, upsetting in a competitive system, because then you literally feel like you have lost because of something outside your control. But I think it's almost as frustrating in a cooperative game where, again, mostly when you're an underpowered character and you feel like you're just getting to do nothing and you're watching other people play the game while you're just sort of walking behind them. Well, I agree. If the game has a rich get richer mechanism, the more powerful I am, I get this cool weapon in level one and I kill all the stuff, meaning I become more and more powerful and the weaker characters fall further and further behind. Yeah, I, I agree that that is definitely a a game system problem in my mind. But I do think if I knew going in that I had a weaker character, I, it still wouldn't bother me because I would try to figure out how to be better with that character. For me, it's almost a a way of learning to be better at the game and thinking at it, thinking about it in a different way than I was before. Yeah, I'll give that to you. Do you think it has the potential to cheapen a win? when you're like not quite sure how much easier or harder the game was. Because we're talking about like a tiered system or a game that was poorly balanced where it's obvious that like some things are better or worse. But think about uh, Pandemic or Defenders of the Realm, which are both within that same kind of area. I don't know if you remember Defenders of the Realm, but they had like the halfling who rides an eagle that I always found incredibly, well not incredibly, but like a good deal, bit stronger. I mean, I would say in Pandemic, maybe the operations expert who can lay down the bases feels a good deal stronger. Well, yeah, and I mean, I don't know anybody who plays Pandemic without a medic either. Yeah, and then Forbidden Island, the the sort of funny one, like, why did you even put these two guys in the game, is the, uh, the diver compared to the pilot. You know, the pilot can move anywhere, the diver can... Not move anywhere, but he can sometimes move a little bit better. It's just it's just sort of comical in that case where, like, literally they're the same power, just want a better version of the same power. Like, they couldn't come up with another power to actually make the game more varied. I agree. And I do think the only reason you would use one over the other is that you're trying to challenge yourself a little more. Yeah. Okay. That's fair. Do you have any more points? Yeah, just one more thing I want to bring up is that this is not necessarily the exact same topic. But I'm very frustrated by games where you have abilities to pick and the abilities are not balanced. Yeah. So we're not even talking like from character to character, but, you know, kind of like we said for Sword and Sorcerer, the idea of dead cards. Um, One of the worst ones for me for this was Mice and Mystics. I felt like there were maybe two good cards for some of the characters and all the rest were almost useless or did the exact same thing as another card I already had. Whereas I feel like Imperial Assault uh, has done it a little bit better. There's still ones that seem to be like clearly better, but at least the other ones combo with other cards, so you kind of have a reason to try out different builds. But yeah, I just feel like... I don't know why. I don't know why... I feel like designers often just get that really wrong. Like, it seems simple to me. You should just be able to lay out your 10 ability cards for a character, and if you feel like you will always pick A and never pick B, you need to rebalance them, but... I don't know. I guess in in the heavy 
lifting of making that huge amount of content, maybe that kind of balance gets lost. Yeah, and I'm going to argue for the other side just for the sake of arguing for the other side, but I do agree with you on this. There's nothing more frustrating than to me than looking at 10 powers and seeing two of them that are good and the rest of them are just junk. But for the sake of argument, it at least gives you a reason to play to go back and play through with the same character. If you're playing through a second time and you do decide to use the same character, something like Mesa Mystic is a perfect example. There are only four characters you can choose from. So you're going to use all four of them at least early on in the game. So you may want to give yourself variety and, again, more of a challenge. So you're almost building a tiered system for yourself where you're handicapping yourself because you're not taking the optimal abilities. Sure. Yeah, to, to play devil's advocate, I kind of see that. I will say the whole tiered idea does hinge upon the idea that you are playing a game a ton, playing through like the campaign multiple times. I think, again, that mathematical balance is probably better for first-time experience or a game you're not going to play that often. Except to give you, you know, your point that it's good for handicapping and like bringing in other players who are not as experienced. Cool. Well, let us know what you think of this new format. I do think we were definitely more back and forth now than we had been in some of our other discussions. So I did like it. I don't know that we're going to be able to argue on opposite sides of every point, but let us know either through Twitter or through our email what you think of this new format, and we'll take your advice into consideration. All right. Well, that was fun, Peter. Yeah. We'll see you guys next time or see you, hear you, you'll hear us. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I think what you were trying to say is... And thanks for listening to another episode of Co-Opcast. That that sounds a lot better. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on Co-Opcast. We'll be back in two weeks to discuss another great cooperative board game. Until then, please review us on iTunes. And feel free to follow us on Twitter at MVP Board Games or email us at MVPBoardGames at gmail.com. Thank you.